Bible, you can be making your way to the New Testament book of James. And today we're in chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Um, We're kind of in the last weeks of this series through the book, and James is getting to the end of his thoughts. And like a good Jewish background writer, he, um, he, he uses idea bookends. Again, we don't necessarily write this way, but, but many of them did. It's, it's a, a form of writing called an inclusio, which is you introduce an issue at the, at the front, you kind of talk about a number of different things, and then you make your way back out and bookend the idea and expand it. And so he completes what he said in chapter 1, verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Now he has more to say about perseverance in the faith. So let's listen, and remember this is God's word. He has something to say to us. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Uh, Help us now, Father, as we look at your word. We pray that we would have ears that can hear it. And that we would actually think this is more valuable than gold and silver, sweeter to our taste than honey, and um, more to be desired than everything else. Uh, Help us to hear in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you have heard of the the Barkley Marathons. Uh, There's a documentary that's kind of made its way to one of the streaming services, the, the... The subtitle of the documentary is The Race That Eats Its Young, which is a translation for us of it's real hard, right? This particular marathon, not easy. Um, So titled because this 100-mile race, so that's strike one, that's 100 miles, is through the mountains of Tennessee, and since its inception in 1986, 17 people have finished it since 1986. And the issue is, so that means that most people don't finish it, uh, much less win it. And the issue is not only the distance. I mean, the distance is an issue. It's, you know, we would not, I'm not running 100 miles anywhere. I'm not going to run one mile. But ultra marathoners do all the time. So, you know, for them, the distance isn't an issue. What is the issue is that over the course Very often, the course uh, gives you over 50,000 feet of elevation gain. Um, Sometimes, uh, well, yeah, a lot of reasons why you wouldn't finish this race, right? What you need if you're going to run the Barkley Marathons is is one thing, Uh, and it's not speed, though you need some speed. You need physical, mental, emotional, probably spiritual endurance. You need to keep moving. You don't need to stop and dawdle. Um, one, One person observing the race over the years says, over the years we found there's something different about the people who joined the short list of finishers. We see it in their eyes when they arrive. They have come for one purpose only, 
to finish. All else is secondary. Finishing is winning. To win is to finish it. There's no, really not many other races like that, but we, we could make the equation to um, the, the Christian life is, is not about winning in the sense that most of our world thinks about winning. The, the Christian life is about finishing. And if you finish it, you win, right? Not all people finish it, and you know that. And if we have seen anything, and, and culturally speaking, within the church over the past, what, 10, 15, 20 years, it has kind of always been this way. A lot of people start it, and they don't finish it. And that's part of what James wants to tell us. If you're going to finish, you're, you're going to have to endure by faith. And in some ways, what you're called to endure is significantly more difficult than, than a 100-mile race in East Tennessee. If you're going to endure... By faith, you're going to have to have something in front of you that you're chasing. Um, if you talk to most marathon runners, ultra-marathon runners, the thing that motivates them is not necessarily something in front of them as something from their past that they are trying to outrun. The Christian life is very different. As much as we have those things too, we will endure as we have something appropriate in our gaze that drives us on. That's what James wants to say. If you want to endure by faith to the end, you're going to need to have your eyes on the right things. And he gives us three. And here they are. You're going to need to see the fruit of endurance, the future of it, and some examples of it. Well, let's talk about each as we walk through the passage today. First, the fruit. James, again, changes his tune and audience. Verse, verses 1 through 6, he was pronouncing judgment on the unrighteous rich who oppress Christians uh, in that particular context. Now he turns back to the church, God's people, and tells them, be patient until the coming of the Lord. That word patient means what we think it means. It's, it's the word long-suffering. Actually, the idiom comes from the idea of having a long nose, meaning that your nose doesn't get hot easily, right? Meaning that you don't get angry and frustrated easily. You're, you're patient. You have a long nose, long-suffering. And he tells them, you're going to have to be patient because you are going to have people who oppress you. You are going to have all the usual miseries and sufferings and trials and frustrations and obstacles and annoyances and inconveniences that are consistent with life in a fallen, broken world where rarely does everything go our way on any given day. To be patient is not to burst into a rage when you don't get what you want. To be patient is to not constantly try to manipulate people in situations so that you can kind of bend them to your control and will. To be patient is to not get churned up with anxiety, but rather to wait in God's providence and trust that he knows what he's doing. And so to help them with that idea of patience, he gives them another agricultural metaphor and says, if you're going to be patient, you need to know what God is actually up to on your insides as you wait. Um, and look at verse 7. He says, there, there's something developing and ripening, in fact. He says, the, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. You can make the argument that the rain is your suffering and trouble and frustration and all the difficulties of your normal existence. And his point is to say, God builds good fruit in you, not in spite of your suffering. Because that's usually how we think of it. Usually we think... This is all really difficult in my life, and it's frustrating, and I don't like it, but like, here's my spiritual life, and maybe God is doing something with me over here. And, and James' point is to say, no, 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 no. 
It is through your suffering that he builds good fruit. It's not in spite of it. It's because of it. You know, left to ourselves, um, trials will ultimately crush you. There's just no way around that. I mean, if you, if you want to read studies on mental health in our world, left to ourselves, trials will absolutely crush our spirits, demoralize us, destroy us, push us into some very unhealthy places. Trials and sufferings in the hands of a God who has purposes for us, who actually has plans, who knows what he's doing. Yeah, we can't see it, but he still knows what he's up to. Um, those very things provide the nourishment for good fruit in our lives that will yield a good harvest later. Uh, the harvest isn't here yet. The fruit is still growing and ripening. And so his call to us is wait, wait. Um, trust that God is doing something and begin to look for it. Right? Look, look and see if there's fruit that's actually been growing in your life. I, um, this is a hard thing. I, I passed a field the other day on a bike ride and uh, it was just a dirt field, nothing green growing. Presumably it had just been recently planted. And the farmer, I assume, I mean, it could have been some random intruder standing out in his field. I assume it was the farmer. And he was awkwardly standing, looking at the dirt. And I had a number of thoughts. What is he looking at? And it just it was strange. He was hunched over. And I, I was close enough to see there's nothing there. He's looking at nothing. And um, it was almost like he was trying to will the green buds to pop out of the ground, right? Like if I think about it hard enough, I can manifest this, this growth. And I thought he looked strange. And of course, he's looking over at a guy in spandex on a bicycle passing his farm. And he thought that looked strange. And so it was, we didn't talk. That's probably for the best. But, um, but I thought about watching him watch for his plants to grow. And I thought about this passage. And um, that, that's us. It's not the worst thing in the world if we are constantly looking and searching for, is there anything that God is producing in me that is good? Is there any fruit? Am I any different now than I was five years ago? And am I, am I a, a more Christ-like human than I was 10 years ago? Is there any evidence that he has been growing good fruit in my life through my suffering? It's not a bad thing to be looking for. Uh, let me ask you a question. Do, do you grumble at the rain like I do? Uh, I threaten during our rainiest months. Every year I threaten to move to the desert. Like I'm, Whatever the case, I don't care what the weather's like. I'm just getting out of here. I hate the rain. Um, do you grumble at the, the metaphorical rain that, that he's talking about here? Do you, do you grumble at the constant frustrations and annoyances and inconveniences of your own making and of others making in your life? Because if, if, we, if we don't believe anything good can come from those things, then grumble and be frustrated is all we'll do. If we can find a shred of faith that says God is actually growing me up, when I have this car trouble that's driving me crazy, he is producing good fruit in, in my life. When, when I have these things, these, these big things that I can't seem to move forward, and I can't will them to move forward regardless of what I do, and I'm just going to have to depend on God to do something. He, he's teaching me greater dependence on him. When I'm encountering opposition in my family or workplace, that he's helping me learn how to lay down my life for the sake of someone else. 
If we can begin to see those things even before they're visible, because let's be honest about fruit, often you don't see it until you're five years down the road, 10 years down the road. So that's the life of faith. You're going to have to believe he's doing it even if you can't see it. Um, if we could begin to believe that, we, we might find ourselves growing in patience. He's up to something. He's building things in our lives as we suffer. So that's one aspect. Uh, we need to see that. But more than just what God is doing in us, we, we also need to have our eyes locked on to ultimate future destination. What, what is ahead for me? What does my ultimate future look like? And, and that's the second point that, that James brings up is we need our eyes on the future of, of our endurance. Um, second point, he, he already said there to be patient until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, be patient, establish your hearts. The coming of the Lord is at hand. That word for coming there of the Lord is what all the scholars agree is um, the Greek word that references the second coming of Christ. I don't assume that everybody here has a Christian background, but fundamental Christian theology says Jesus showed up. He was born. He lived perfect life. He died an unjust death on a Roman cross. On the third day, he was raised. Then he ascended with a body that is glorified back to the Father and told them, uh, I'll be back, and when I come back, it's to finish all things. It's, it's the end of the days. Um, new heavens, new earth. That's the second coming. We don't know if James expected Jesus to return in their lifetime or not. We have no idea. Um, that's usually our preoccupation when we start talking about the second coming of Jesus, right? Let's talk about the timeline. And James' point is to say, no, 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 no. We're not going to talk about the timeline. We're going to talk about what's supposed to happen until then. And kind of the way that he thinks about the first coming and the second coming of Jesus, let's use a little metaphor to help us here. You may have heard this before. Um, if you're standing on Trey Mountain here in northeast Georgia, right, standing on the Appalachian Trail, and you look north, you're going to see two mountains that for all intents and purposes, they, they look like they're just back to back, that there's no distance between them, right? And um, actually, I mean, it's Deep Gap and then Sassafras Gap to be specific. And it looks like they're just right there, one behind the other. And in a sense, that's true until you actually, if you were to travel between the two. And if you travel between the two, what you're going to find is actually between those two mountains is miles and hills and creeks and rivers and towns and roads and all kinds of stuff. Even though they look back to back in that moment, they're actually stretched out and, and James' point is to say, the first coming of Jesus has come. The second coming of Jesus is the next thing. That's the next thing on the calendar. And his point is to say, now let's talk about how you deal with all the little hills and creeks and dips along the way until that second coming. Um, he wants them to understand you're, you're going to have to endure each little valley and river and crossing with patience and faithfulness with your eyes on the next mountain. That's the point. If you're traveling in that kind of valley, in that kind of terrain, your, your big landmark is the next mountain in front of you. That's the one thing that you can see. And that's what he wants them to understand. Get your face looking at the fact that Jesus promises to return and make all things new. Now, there's another side of the return of Christ that he mentions in verse 9. Because Let's say you are between the mountains um, and you're suffering. 
and you're experiencing ordinary human problems, you might be tempted to grumble along the way, right? And you wouldn't be the first. The great parallel for us is the people of Israel. They just got um, rescued from slavery in Egypt, and they're on their way to the promised land. And throughout this place called the wilderness, what do they do? Every step of the way, they grumble and complain. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough water. I miss Egypt. We had better things there. Who are these leaders? Who is this God? Where are we going? All along the way, it's amazing that God didn't kill them all. And that's what the Bible tells us. It is amazing. He's a God of grace. That's us. Suffering can make us grumpy at best. We can be full of murmuring. I don't know if you've thought of this, and I don't know that I had until this week, but when we grumble, verbally or not, um, what we're doing is, as James has said multiple times, we are taking the position of a judge, and we're standing above this situation that I don't like, and we're making a pronouncement on it. This isn't right. This isn't good. I deserve better, and whoever brought this along in my life is wrong. And if it happens to be God who brought it, then maybe he's wrong. To quote the Israelites, did he rescue us from Egypt only to kill us in the wilderness? That's how they articulated it. And James wants them and and me and us to know that if you're tempted to grumble along the way, the actual judge is coming, standing at the door, in fact, and he will bring all things to account. Um, He'll make all things right. And he'll judge the world. And you don't want to be found to be the judgmental grumbler when the actual judge, who has the authority and ability to pronounce on all things, shows up. In other words, be patient in your suffering. Endure by faith. Keep going. Don't give in to grumbling and murmuring while you wait. Get your eyes on the fact of Christ's coming and the fact that he is the true judge. And he actually says, not just don't grumble, He also uses this strange phrase, establish your hearts. What does that mean? It's kind of the idea of strengthen your inner man. The Hebrew conception of heart is different from what we say. Heart for us is like your feelings. For them, it's the center of your entire being. It's the core of who you are. And so he's saying strengthen your inner man. Well, how do you do that? right? How are you supposed to go go try to strengthen your inner man? Um, A good place to begin is, is to believe what James says is true because it's not automatic for us. James just told us Christ will return in your time and space and history at some point. It will happen. And part of our problem is that we don't think that that's true. Uh, Even if you're here and you're a Christian, we might pay lip service to it, but we don't live as if that's real. We kind of chalk it up to, uh, you know, at worst we think, well, that's foolish, that's a myth or a legend, it's not really real. At best we think... I mean, yeah, maybe one day, and it just doesn't seem like something that's going to happen. Maybe it's an old wives' tale. Um, It's another place where we would do well to think about the people in Noah's day who Noah's going around talking about rain, and they're saying, what's rain? Because presumably it hadn't rained yet on the earth. And um, a flood's coming. What's a flood? And they probably thought this was ridiculous until it was raining, right? And think about the people in... uh, the Israelites in slavery in Egypt, in year 399. Year 399. At that point in history, you're thinking, well, this is how it's going to be. 
we will always be slaves in this place. Nothing is ever going to change. And then a year later, this guy Moses shows up promising to deliver the people of God and threatening and taunting Pharaoh. And within the year, you're out. It must have felt like the craziest thing in the world to, to even dream of freedom until Moses shows up and leads you out. Same with the coming of the Messiah. Years and years and years of promises. And there he was, standing among them, walking around. The promises were real, even though they didn't feel real before they happened. How do you establish your heart? You believe that the coming of Jesus one day to make all things right again is more real than everything that we regard as the real world around us. And you beg God for the faith to take that in. And what's interesting is that as you find your inner man strengthened because you're believing that truth, you actually are growing more patient because that gives perspective on everything that you're experiencing. There's a judge coming. I don't have to be the judge. Um, the, the second mountain is on the way. Everything's going to be made right. I can endure. I can make it. Um, so don't grumble and uh, strengthen your inner man. Christ will make everything right and good. Uh, look to the end of the story now in the middle of it to make sense out of it. Now, uh, okay, so that's great. God's doing something on our insides. There's this future that we're all looking forward to. Good, good. Wouldn't it be great if somebody had, I don't know, walked this path before and we had their story recorded? What would it be? Wouldn't it be great to have an example of what it looks like to, to stay faithful to the end? And that's James' point. We, we have them. Look at them. Look at the examples. He says it, the last point, says it in verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He doesn't say which ones. It doesn't matter which ones. Read the Old Testament. All of them suffered at some level. Uh, Jeremiah suffered at the hands of the people of God. They tried to kill him over and over and over because they hated what he was preaching, even though it was true. Isaiah Legend tells that he's the one that's referenced in Hebrews 11. There was a prophet who was sawn in two, presumably by the people of God. And church history tells us that it seems like that was Isaiah. Multiple prophets were persecuted. Many were killed. Jesus makes it clear in the Gospels that the unbelieving, self-righteous Jewish people of the day had always persecuted and killed the prophets who showed up telling what was true. And his point is to say, yeah, and they endured they did suffer and, until they died, which means that they didn't stop preaching the truth. They didn't stop believing the truth. They endured. And then, of course, he brings up Job in verse 11. You may know Job's story. You may not, but it's a strange thing where we see the curtain pulled back on uh, kind of the heavenly realms. Satan himself asks God for permission because that is actually how it has to work. Ask God for permission to test this guy, Job. Does Job serve you for nothing? And God says, um, I, I give you permission. Don't kill him. But you can, God had his purposes that Satan didn't even know about. And so all Job experiences, he doesn't know any of this. All he knows is, man, my life just absolutely stinks right now. Everything he had and held dear was taken away from him. And the whole book of Job is Job questioning it. And arguing with God and wrestling verbally. He's not passive. He's not just sitting there passively saying, okay, I will wait patiently till the end of this trial. He is actively engaged. God, what are you doing? 
In the end, he gets a vision of God in the whirlwind and bows the knee and says, I have asked questions that I didn't even know should be asked. I shut my mouth. You're God. I'm not. And in the end, he gets full restoration of, of all things. And, and the point of him mentioning Job is to say he didn't do even what his wife told him to do. He didn't curse God and die. He wrestled. He he. he dealt with it, but he kept believing. And James says, we consider those who remain steadfast, we consider them blessed. Those who are steadfast, those who hold up under the load. That's the idea conveyed there. You're going to have to hold up if you're going to experience this thing called blessing. Jesus said, blessed are you when people persecute you and insult you for my sake, assuming that you continue on and don't cave. That's the path to blessedness. And um, the last thing he mentions here is um, you, you know, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, and that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And while we're talking about examples, and we're thinking about the purposes of the Lord, and the compassion and mercy of the Lord, well, you cannot help but go to James' half-brother, who we're told is not just one of the prophets um, who, who remains steadfast, but is the prophet. Not just somebody who's suffered unjustly like Job did, but the person who suffered ultimate injustice, greater than Job, um, that he's the one who held up all the way to the point, Hebrews, of shedding blood. The death of Jesus is the supreme example of patience. And it also shows us the purpose, compassion, and mercy of the Lord. At the cross, you see Jesus never given to sin. He could have. He never did. Because he had a righteous record to give to people who were unrighteous, and he had to obey to the end. At the cross, you see the perfect die for the imperfect. At the cross, you see the purposes of God, what leaders meant for evil. God ultimately purposed for good for us and for the world. At the cross, you see the compassion and mercy of God as Christ bears the curses of our sins so that we might get the blessings that he deserved because of his obedience. Uh, Christ is... Our example, yes, but he's more than that. He's the answer to the, why would I ever choose to suffer and to patiently endure? He is the answer for that. Because when we look at him, we know that all of our suffering is not God's punishment for us. He is actually working all things together for our good and will bring us into a new heavens and a new earth because of the cross of Jesus. We find all the motivation for continuing on and persevering in the person and work of Christ how do you follow an example, right? You're going to have to look at their lives, right? You follow an example by knowing who they are and by understanding what their life looked like. You're going to have to make a study of it. Um, when you think about Jesus um, and kind of what the Christian life entails, we, we could sum it up with, with this statement. Really, the Christian life is about Getting to know Jesus better, right? At some level. It's, it's about, get, you, you believe in Christ and you put your hope in him and until you're dead or he shows up, your whole life is about trying to get to know him better. And, and if you have no interest in getting to know him, you, you would be right to ask if you know him at all. And, I mean, and this, this makes sense out of why at a church we talk about studying the Bible and preaching through it and it's why we focus on the Bible when we get together in small. We're trying to get to know Jesus better. That's the point. 
And we believe that the whole Bible talks about them. It's why we pray, because getting to know somebody isn't just information, right? It's, it's not an intellectual exercise. You can commune with the risen Christ now. That's why we pray. It's why we confess and repent and believe the gospel promises and take communion and do baptisms and do everything that is part of the normal life of the church. It's so that we might get to know Jesus better, so that we might keep believing. That's, that's how we get to know the example and how we persevere. And could that give you motivation for picking the Bible up or, or setting aside time to pray or committing to a small group? Because um, I can tell you this, if, if we don't get to know him better, the chances of making it to the end grow incredibly small, right? When we begin to wall ourselves off and separate ourselves from getting to know Christ in the context of his people, there's a good chance that suffering might break us. There's a good chance that we will give up on him or the church altogether. We need our eyes on him in word, sacrament, prayer, and, and fellowship. You know what's interesting is that as we get our eyes on Jesus, did you know that Jesus had his eyes on something? We read it earlier. I don't know if this struck you. Um, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Despite What was the joy set before Jesus? It is the redeemed humanity from every tongue, tribe, and nation gathered together in a renewed heavens and a new earth where everything has been made right again and nothing evil or dark ever interrupts ever again. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand for our sake and will actually come and make his own joy and our joy complete. If you belong to Jesus, you've entered something much more demanding than the Barclay Marathons. It's, it's going to take absolutely everything that you've got. The good news is that you belong to a God who will give you everything that you need. And so by faith, through your suffering, believe that God is actually growing good fruit. Get your eyes down on the ground and see if you can see some of the little buds popping up. Um, look back five years and see if there was some growth then. Uh, Get your eyes on the mountain, the future that is promised to us. Jesus will return and judge the world and make all things new. Strengthen your heart in that truth and look to the example of those who have finished well, specifically Christ, whose death triumphed in resurrection. And if you believe, so will yours. Um, as the old hymn says, brothers and sisters, on to the close by faith. Let's, let's endure. Uh, pray with me. Father, in the middle of the wilderness, we're tired, we're grumpy. We have all kinds of complaints and frustrations. We have all kinds of judgments we want to make. And um, we come to you and we ask for eyes to see what we cannot at the moment. Give us faith. Help us to believe that you're growing fruit. Help us to believe that Christ will actually come and will make this vapor of a life feel exactly like what it was, a vapor that was a mist and is gone in light of the eternity that's ahead of us. Give us faith. We can't believe that unless you help us. And um, would you help us to have eyes that can see the supreme example and the supreme motivator, the one who has promised us uh, that we are new creations 
Help us to see Jesus and give us the grace that we need to endure to the end. We pray in his name. Amen.